0: Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the Supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution.
1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. That's plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. Hi, I'm Jesse Hauk, the Scum Frog, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast.
2: House Culture.
0: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast hosted by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. I hope all of you out there are managing to stay safe and sane. Hopefully us at House Culture can deliver some of the goodness from the club into your lockdown life at home. This second season of podcast has been our biggest yet, featuring interviews with legends such as Fatboy Slim, Tall Pauls, Smoking Joe, and the Ibiza icon and creative director at Pikes Hotel, Dawn Hindle. However, if those are the only ones that you've heard so far, why not start flicking through season one, where you'll find episodes featuring the likes of Terry Farley, Greg Wilson, Andy Manston, and Sally Rogers from A Man Called Adam. And if you're new to us at House Culture and want to know who we are and what we stand for, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is our home at houseculturenet, so come and get up close and personal with us and like minded individuals with no social distancing allowed. Let's get going with this next episode, shall we? In this one, we chat to superstar DJ, remixer extraordinaire, and Burning Man legend Jesse Halk, aka the Scum Frog. As you're here, we learn about his first experiences with dance music.
1: That fateful night in 1988 that I discovered house music and a rave, and I'm like, wow, there's one DJ and you can do all of that just by yourself. And it's a whole new world opened up.
0: The benefits of being a producer, remixer and a DJ.
1: I wouldn't enjoy producing or remixing if I didn't get to DJ it. I, I think DJing the stuff that you make enables you to really fine-tune it before you put it out.
0: And his principled approach to where he plays and who he plays for.
1: I didn't want to play in a venue where people did not come for the music because it just felt like a big waste of my time and I felt like okay if I'm gonna make my money just going through the motions I shouldn't do that with the thing that I
0: love. As has been the case with most of the interviews this season this was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic so any dates mentioned within either aren't happening or are postponed indefinitely so please check online if you hear us talk about anything you might be interested in. Now that disclaimer's done sit back relax and listen this is Jesse Houck the Scum Frog. House culture. Hi Jesse, thank you so much for fitting us into your very busy schedule and sitting down with us at House Culture and inviting us into this wonderful flat in London ahead of your gig tomorrow night. Um, you're a remixer extraordinaire, a DJ that's toured the world and a Grammy nominated producer and artist. But on this series of podcasts, we always like to start at the beginning. How did you first discover music that you loved? Wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> How do I first discover music that I loved? Um my I was I was raised by my mother and she was rather limited in the music that she exposed me to. She loved classical music and uh, I think she had like two Beatles records and, and that was about it. Um and now I'm gonna have to date myself a little bit. But um in in nineteen seventy eight I was uh 7 and uh Saturday night fever and grease came out that year and and that was the year when i realized what a buzz was around music because before that i lived in a bubble in my home and i didn't really know like top 40 or stuff like that and and i remember that those two things like everybody was talking about those albums and you heard them on the radio and it was a thing and you had to see the movie and so that's when I realized wow music is a really powerful thing and and I need to have those albums and then from there on I started to discover music on my own and then when I was 12 13 I would just be in secondhand record stores every single weekend all day long listening to whatever album cover looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's often the best way to
0: discover good yeah, things, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so at the time, was it contemporary stuff you were really searching out or just anything that obviously, like you say, looked, looked cool?
1: Just any. I mean, I discovered James Brown, Prince, Pink Floyd, Steely Dan, um, all in those years. So it was, it was pretty much like old stuff as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's what stands you like in a good stead, I think, having that understanding of st- stuff from the past when you move forward. And so how did um, you kind of segue into producing and becoming a DJ? Did you want to make this music on the back of that, or were you just a passionate fan to begin with?
1: DJing started before DJ culture started. My DJing started before DJ culture started. So I started DJing you know, in the back of a bar, playing whatever the owner of the bar told me to play. <laughs> Uh, anything from you know Joan Jet to you know early hip hop, yeah. and, uh, and where was this in Amsterdam? Where yeah. I grew up in Amsterdam. Um, so I and I never thought that you could that that was a career, yeah. you know. And and I think that um, my whole family was like, oh, that's so cute that you do that. Um, and what will you do after you're 30, you know? <laughs> <laughs> when you grow up. And, and, I, and I was convinced, like, you know, I, I'm I'm hopefully going to make a career in music because I played in bands at the same time. But playing in bands and DJing was completely separated. Yeah. That, those were two very separate things. Uh, until that fateful night in 1988 that I discovered house music and a rave. And I'm like, wow, there's one DJ and you can do all of that just by yourself? And... <laughs> The a, a whole new world opened up. Yeah. So where where was that rave?
0: Can you remember specifically?
1: It was in Amsterdam. It was yeah. uh, it, an area behind Central Station that is now completely yeah. has changed. Yeah. Uh, that used to be all warehouses, uh, abandoned warehouses. And, and that's where the cool raves went on in the late 80s. Uh, but now it's all just residential,
0: yeah. brand new stuff. Oh, this yeah. happened all over the world. I mean, we'll kind of try and come to that in, in at the end. Um, and so uh, what was it that obviously the music was an incredible part of that? What else was it that drew you in? Was it so sort of like the people and like the culture and the feeling? Or was it just like this music is just something that blows my mind?
1: It was a mix of different things. I was very frustrated with playing in bands because... You have to rely on other musicians, and and <laughs> I was really good at scouting talented musicians that were really young. Uh, but then, as as soon as we did like a, one or two prominent shows somewhere, bands who could actually pay musicians would steal the musicians away from me. Um, I call it stealing, but you know they were just like, "I got to go now." And so I was always short of musicians. Yeah. And uh, so when I when I saw that. You can just do that by yourself as a DJ. Like, wait a second. Like I need these other guys. And, and I already did that. <laughs> I already knew how to mix records and I love that music. Yeah. I was just not used to playing more than twenty minutes at the time of yeah. house music. Yeah. yeah. So so the the first rave was when I realized, wow, you can do this hours on end. Yeah. And have one's trope light and you know, a few giant speakers that's and that's it.
0: All you need for yeah. a party, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was it a case of, okay, I'm going to like ignore all of the other stuff in my collection and just kind of build out the house music that you've got to build it out further yeah. than the 20 minutes that you already had? Or
1: Yeah, it took me quite a while to actually develop my own style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still struggling. After 30 years, I'm still struggling with like what on earth is my style because I... You know, maybe because I come from the the days where you just played everything, yeah, and you were supposed to blend all styles together, and I really like that. Yeah. Um, I never got into the playing like, oh, I am a you know minimal tech house DJ, and then yeah. that's what I'm supposed to play, and God forbid I you know break away from that. Yeah. Um, and and I understand that that is really good for branding purposes, like. DJs who really pick one style and one look and one thing and you know that's awesome for branding Uh, but for me personally it gets a little boring.
0: Yeah and as any brand that's decent brand that's out there they have to kind of evolve and move with the times and sometimes you can find yourself Kitchen hold into something that's like suddenly becomes not so trendy or not so good and then yeah you yeah, have that too yeah so I think eclecticism is, is great so how um didn't you move to New York yes when I was 25 yeah I so moved to New York. were you already an established DJ in Amsterdam at that point when you
1: moved or sort of established in, in the local scene yeah, yeah but not I was not playing internationally yeah um, at all and, and funny enough I left in 96. Mm -hmm. And that was right like there were some really big local Dutch DJs um, that really were instrumental in the in the scene in Holland. But there were no international DJs like Tiesto was still working in a record store. And uh, Armin Van Buren, Mm -hmm. uh, who, who was a friend of mine and who is like who was making records at the same time that I was in Holland. You know, none of us had broken through. And I really felt like I needed to go to New York yeah. in order to break through internationally because I looked around and it was like, nobody in Holland is breaking through internationally. So I need to go to New York. The minute I left for New York, all those cats broke out. <laughs> like uh, Ferry, uh, yeah. Sander Kleinenberg, Armin yeah. van Buuren, Tiesto, yeah. they all became international superstars. And I look back at Holland and I was like, wow. Maybe it was because I left that all of those guys
0: are <laughs> up <laughs> doing international things. But it was it
1: was kind of ironic, yeah.
0: Wow, okay. So and you arrived in New York and like, okay, I'm going to make it happen here. As much as those yeah. guys have become established at home. So how did you go about that over there? Was the style of music any different from what you were Very different. playing? yeah. Yet? yeah so, so what, um, year sorry that was 96 96 so yeah. and and I love the US sound like mm. uh,
1: masters at work yeah you know, Louie Vega Kenny dope um, DJ sneak Roger Sanchez um, so I, I really Eric Murillo yeah I, I wanted to be part of that crew uh, and I was not big on trance, mm. even though I definitely made some trance records while, when it was in Holland <laughs> Uh, because that's just the thing you did back yeah, then. Yeah, um, I never inhaled. Um, <laughs> but uh, in New York, it just started to work out, and and I met Roger Sanchez, and and he signed me to his label. And my first tour was opening for him uh, in the U.S. and North America. So that yeah. was a really great um, learning experience, and yeah. then it took off from there.
0: Yeah, I mean, in the last series of this podcast, we did an interview with uh, Fat Phil Cooper. Um, he was talking about he went on a cream tour with Roger Sanchez, and he described how he would never seen someone with such like technical mastery approach and work the decks in that way. And you know, he's still doing it now. It's incredible yeah. stuff. Yeah,
1: unbelievable discipline. Yeah, and and work ethic too. Yeah, like those are two things that I completely struggled with. Yeah, <laughs> and and that was that was super inspiring to to see him. Like every time, every day we had a different city and we would arrive there and I would be like, where are the pretty girls? And he'd be like, all right, let's go to the gym. Yeah. Like, wait, you got, you go to the gym? Like, yeah, because otherwise, you know, at the end of the tour, you're going to be dead. Like, okay. You know, so those things were really valuable lessons at that point.
0: Yeah, and so how um, how were you warming up for him? What were you? What tracks were you playing? Yeah, house. At that point, it was like house and deep house. Mm. Deep
1: house, of course, in the nineties was slightly different than deep house now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think he picked me because I I wasn't playing big house anthems. Yeah. So I I could set the mood nicely, and then he would play the big, yeah, smash hits. Yeah, yeah. And
0: was did you have any at that period? Uh, he was obviously a, a kind of a mentor in a way. Did you have oh, any absolutely. other heroes or mentors during that time? Yeah. Danny
1: Tenaglia Danny was Tenaglia. a big one. Yeah. Um, that was a, an amazing moment. He, he played every Friday night slash Saturday morning at uh, Twilo and then later at vinyl. Mm. Uh, and those were legendary nights. Yeah. That was such an amazing sound he had. And the, the sound system was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I'll never forget. I um, this is before this is before I signed with Roger. My very first record um, that did anything um, was called the Water Song, and um, you're nodding. Yeah, you're- yeah, yeah. I know. I know what you're going to say. So. Right, so so how that happened? I made that in New York. Mm-hmm. I shopped it around to record labels in New York, but I, I had just moved to New York. I made it in my kitchen uh on a little digital eight track recorder. And um nobody was interested in signing it. Yeah. Uh but fortunately I still had a lot of contacts in Holland, so I I signed it to a label back in Holland. Um and uh I received a you know, a couple of vinyls. I think you you got like five or ten copies. Um and at the same time, there was this other label in Holland who asked me if I could be um, their promo guy in New York and give new promos for their label to Danny Tenaglia. So every every month they would send me their prom- their promos, yeah. and I would give them. I would go to Twilo and give them to Danny. So Danny was Danny knew me as the guy who brings him promos. But when my own thing came out, I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna pop that in with the promos and uh and <laughs> great move so uh like two weeks later after i gave him that thing he calls me up which he never does which he never did so i, I thought it was a prank call at first i was like hi it's Dan naglia i'm like okay he's like he's like yeah you give me a, a record by the name of scum frog and i see on your business card we still had business cards back then uh that you are scum frog i'm like Yes, that's true. He's like, well, I've been hammering that record and you should absolutely come to Twilo uh, tonight because, you know, you should see how it goes over. So that wow. was an amazing introduction to wow. the scene. Yeah. Um, what an incredible in place to hear your own music. Unbelievable. Yeah. Because I was never happy with the way that record sounded because, okay. you know, it, I I know in what, what a rinky-dink way I made it. Yeah. Um, but when I heard it on that system, I was like, "Oh, this is actually pretty good." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because didn't he fe- he featured it on uh, his global underground? Yes, Athens, Athens album. exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, that was like. I, like back then when that album was released over here Danny Snaglia he wasn't really that big a name and those, those Global Underground albums were oh were huge yeah, yeah huge and for him to kind of pop up and uh, I remember buying it and listening to it and just being astounded by the tribalness the deep dark bass everything and obviously your track was a big part of that how did that feel did that take it to the next level getting featured on that series or was it already there in terms of doing really well do you think
1: Oh, no, that record was not doing anything. That record was completely dead in what has sold three copies worldwide. And, you know, (laughs) probably all in, like, Amsterdam. Yeah. And uh, so Danny completely
0: rediscovered or discovered that record. And then it started to sell. And then would you say that that kind of put you on the map in terms of, okay, we need the scum frog to do a remix for us or we're happier to sign stuff. It's
1: it's funny because when I approached Roger, like Roger had a different sound than Danny. And so when I approached Roger with a demo that I had done that I wanted to shop to him, he, he was not aware of the water song. He might've heard it, but it was not in his repertoire. It was not in his sets. So um, the fact that I had done water song had nothing to do with, Roger signing me. The the biggest thing that the water song did for me that it made me stuck to the name Scumfrog. Yeah. Cause I had like six or seven different aliases at the time and Scumfrog was a nickname that I had from way before. Yeah. I'd never picked the name Scumfrog. There was somebody else who came up with that who was dyslexic, who read <laughs> Scumfrog and something that didn't even say Scumfrog. So it was a completely random thing. Yeah. And so so a few years back Somebody in Holland called me Scumfrog. So I figured, okay, I'm going to make a record by myself. Oh, I'll call it Scumfrog. And so that was the water song. And that made me think like, okay, maybe I should stick with that name. Yeah. But then when I signed it to Roger, uh, and then that record got signed to um, Warner Music, uh, <laughs> Warner Music scheduled a meeting with me, um, uh, which what what i thought was just to to go over the release of the the record and they they actually sat me down and it's like well Jesse uh this is a great record and we can't wait for the release but um do you realize that if there's one one moment that you can pick a different name it's now they <laughs> were <laughs> <laughs> and they're all sitting across the table and uh, i i didn't get the hint I, I i was just like yeah yeah i guess so but no i'll be scumfuck but they they were kind of eager to make me pick something more marketable than scum yeah. frog yeah
0: well it's you know it's iconic in a way you know no one else is called scum frog that is true yeah they they were like well there's a pretty low glass ceiling for uh <laughs> for a name i
1: like sense, scum frog. I <laughs> sense <laughs> a tiny bit of regret about
0: this this decision but
1: no because things things go the way they go right yeah. so you can never say like well if i had the name tiesto i nah, nah, nah,
0: nah, nah. <laughs> Yeah, what could have happened? Yeah, um, and obviously as Scumfrog, you've remixed some massive artists, you know, all over the place. I'm thinking of people like David Bowie, Kylie Minogue, New Order. Um, out of those three, I'm sure you could probably pick one anyway. Has there been any outside of those as well that you've been really daunted about working on, or for, or with? I think my
1: favorite collaboration was Cindy Lauper. Yeah, um, because. It was so surprising how creative she was, and how differently creative she was than anyone I had worked with, and and how unbelievably knowledgeable she is about m- not just music, but like studio engineering and and mm-hmm. and so and you don't expect that from somebody like Cindy Lauper, and and she's unbelievably funny, and uh, so that was a very memorable time in the studio together. Yeah, and and Sting was great because. Um, it was the first time that he allowed his stuff to be reworked for um, yeah. dance music, so that was great. And and Bowie was was just surreal because I would never done anything with anyone, and then so to, for your first thing to be with David Bowie, it's
0: just like where
1: where do you go from <laughs> <setting> there? Down <laughs> from there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's incredible and um, I suppose on the back of all of that well what kind of came first for you and what do you prefer do you prefer to remix other people's work or produce your own or do um, you DJ that, that's all tied together I think yeah. um, I
1: wouldn't I wouldn't enjoy producing or remixing if I didn't get to DJ it I, I think DJing the stuff that you make enables you to really fine tune it before you put it out and I've definitely been several remixes from from the era that I did a lot of remixes that I didn't take the time to play them out and that later on after they were released I was like oh no I, I wish I would taken a little more time for that yeah. so yeah I, I don't have any per- so the one thing that I don't like and I found this out while doing it is remixing for artists who have no idea that I'm remixing their stuff right and and that was very common at the time, especially in the United States. There would be an A and R department for an artist, and then there would be a remix, a, a separate remix A and R person, who would just make sure that whatever song the record company had decided was going to be a single, the remix A and R guy would find remixers for that song, mm-hmm. and. 9 out of 10 times if not more often the artist would have no first of all no say in that yeah. and and second of all uh, so no no say in who got selected and second of all uh, also no knowledge yeah. of it and um that just got a little d- depressing after a while i so at one point i did a Britney Spears remix yeah. and and i i had no shame in remixing Britney Spears because i i would figure you know what i'll i'll make it Cool and this and that. Yeah. So I would do a lot of dubs. Yeah. And you know, strip away most of the vocals. Keep keep a certain part of the vocals. So I did that, and it was it was for Sony, and and they that was still in a time where you got paid a lot of money. So yeah. I'm like, great. And um, it got to number one in the Billboard Dance Charts. And the week that it was number one, I walked into this nightclub in New York uh, called Bungalow Eight. And Britney Spears was there. She was like a regular there. Um, so I figured I'll go up to her and introduce myself yeah. and tell her with a big smile on my face, I am Scumfrog. Ha ha. And, and then she would undoubtedly go like, oh my God, you're a scum Scumfrog. So I go up to her and it's like, I said, I'm Scumfrog. And she looks at me, uh, who? <laughs> what? <laughs> and that's when I realized like the record was number one in the Billboard dance charts. And she had no idea that remixes had been made and and it was a remix package so there were probably like three other remixers yeah that all had gotten paid like significant chunks of money from her royalties i mean it's, it's not that she was hurting for money but still it's it's the idea that counts right mm-hmm. so so her record company had decided to spend fifty thousand dollars of her royalties to remix a song, that, and, and it was even worse. It was this, the first song that she had been allowed to write herself <laughs> on like her third album. The, yeah. the song was called Every Time. Yeah. So she was really proud of that song. And then the record company spends 50 grand on people to butcher that song for her and and put it on dance radio in a completely different way than she had imagined it. Yeah. And she's not even aware of it. And I'm like, there's re- something really wrong with this industry. Yeah. Um, so that's when I stopped um, remixing
0: um, major artists. I suppose, yeah, you'd want that faith in that person having, okay, I've got faith in this guy. I know they'll do a really good job. Let's work with them to create something rather than just be like, okay, we've got a stack of cash here. She doesn't know about it. Just tick these boxes right. and we'll put it on the If there's single. a
1: synergy between
0: the artist and a remixer, then it's great. Yeah. I'm all on board. And in terms of like those kind of good feelings and, you know, when you are playing out and DJing, what kind of environment do you prefer to play in? Are you more kind of a, a big room club guy, a small intimate space or festival? What's the... Um, small intimate what's the space. Idea?
1: Well, um, I'd say between 300 and 700 people yeah. is my most favorite Space the space where you could still, um, the, the gauge for me is if, if I can still turn off the music completely and scream something into the crowd, will they hear it? Okay. And if the answer is no, then the crowd is too large, yeah. you know, for, or if I need a microphone, then the crowd is too large. But yeah. if, I, if I can turn off the music and yell something and everybody will hear it, then it's the, then it's the right crowd. That's a good so, yeah. gauge. That's yeah. a very good gauge. Is yeah. it
0: something that you'd often do or tempted to do? No, no. Is- I I
1: rarely do it, but it is it is the gauge because yeah. it 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 determines how intimate people feel. And so, when you have five six hundred people, it can still you can still play big room tracks for five six hundred people. Yeah. Um, so, but you can you can choose whether you're going to make it sound you're going to make the room sound small or large you can really mix that up whereas a, a huge room you can't really play small room stuff and i and i love small room stuff so yeah.
0: yeah yeah it's those like seeing the whites of the people's eyes i think is the best place to be and like if you're a dj or a dancer and you're dancing to something really small in a small and intimate place and there's a dj that you really appreciate to have that really close connection i think yeah. is yeah it's a really good space to be in and so i suppose the complete opposite of that is um i want to talk to you about burning man and your kind of connection with that festival um our co-founders at house culture are big burners as they call themselves and obviously you have been a big part of that as well as as the burning man festival um can you just tell us about the first time you went to burning man and kind of impact it had on you was it yeah. as a as a punter? You bought a <laughs> ticket and went, or were you there as a, uh, so a player? I, I was.
1: This is a, this is a funny story. Um, I was invited by a sound camp called Opulent Temple, and this is in two thousand four when Opulent Temple was was relatively new at Burning Man. I think this was their second year, and the, it was the first camp that invited. Name DJs to to come to Burning Man, um, and the the founder of the camp loves my music. And 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 every time I came to San Francisco, you know, he came to the show and he introduced himself and he's like, "You got to come to Burning Man." And I'd never heard of it. So then I had a friend in New York because this is way before it started to catch on in New York. I had one friend in New York who knew about Burning Man, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I think it's cool." Um, so then this guy from the camp, um, contacts my office, but it's, it's right at the end of August, right? So it's at the height of the season It's the height of Ibiza season and festival season. So not only does it cost a lot of money to go to Burning Man, but you're going to lose a lot of money from all the gigs you're not doing while you're at Burning Man. So my agent and my manager both advise me strongly against it. They're like, well, we have this and this and Croatia here and Ibiza there. And, um, and uh, I decided, okay, I, want, I, I really want to check it out. I'm going to check it out. So, um, unfortunately, a lot of, a lot got lost in translation uh, with the booking. So, I arrive there. Uh, I arrive at Burning Man at the gate. Uh, this is before the festival sold out. You could just still go up to the gate and buy a ticket. Um, and I go up to Will Call, and uh, I say, "Hi, I'm 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 the DJ. I'm I'm headlining here tomorrow." And they they look at me with this smile in their face. <laughs> it's just like big lady response, laughing response, like "Honey, everyone's a DJ here." <laughs> They'll be three hundred and fifty dollars, please. Wow. Um, so that got lost in translation. That I had to buy my own <laughs> ticket, um, and I was with my friend. So uh, I I came seven hundred dollars out of pocket for. For just being there, because we sh- we briefly thought about going back, but we're in the middle of the desert, yeah. right? So you're not going. It's three in the morning, and we'd flown to Reno, then driven there. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So I was pissed at this guy who had invited me to come play. He's like, oh, I'm so happy you made it. So I'm like, yeah, I just paid seven hundred dollars to to come to your party. <laughs> Damn. Uh, so that was my first time for and. But then the next day. Uh, I played and then the day after that, I, I did a whole tour and completely fell in love
0: with it. And then I got hooked and then yeah. I went
1: every year since.
0: I mean, for our listeners that might not have been before, can you just talk about the the kind of the community and the setup of, of the festival, like your kind of thoughts on that and how it all works? So everybody,
1: uh, everybody who goes um, contributes to the festival you're supposed to contribute something. So in my case, it was DJing, Um, but it can be artwork or it can be building a a giant vehicle, or it can be handing out sandwiches to people uh, during the day or night. Um, Or cocktails or what have you. Uh, So you're supposed to bring something and um, everybody pays their ticket and you can, do it on a budget and stay in a tent, or you can do it in luxury style and get a tour bus with a shower. And, um, the, the festival is divided, uh, mostly into camps. Mm -hmm. So you, you get a few friends together or you, you, you approach an existing camp and then you have the structure of a camp where you have a anywhere from like 10 to 150 people that have a kitchen schedule and cooking and cleaning
0: and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sounds incredible. Um, and yeah, you've done some iconic sunset sets at District and sunrises at Robot Heart, um, having had a a couple of years off to kind of reflect and with the rise of Instagram and more mainstream kind of demographics going to the festival, um, do you still think Burning Man has kind of the magic it used to have or do you think it's really changed? The magic of
1: Burning Man changes every year yeah. that's that's part of the evolution of Burning Man yeah. uh, so no it definitely does not have the magic that it used to have yeah. um, but if you're going there trying to find the magic from yesterday that's I think the, the wrong attitude to have towards the festival yeah. um, so every, every year it's different and every year has a different kind of magic and um, and, uh, yeah, people who go for the first time will still have that same sense of awe as people who went for the first time 20 years ago.
0: And those sets that you've played, how much kind of planning goes into those that, you know, they talks talked about so much?
1: Um, That that depends because it's nice to do both. It's nice to do sets where you just play completely off-the-cuff sets that are not even planned. You know, you, you arrive somewhere and you have your USB stick and... Yeah. You're like, oh, let's hop on for a while and, and see what happens. Those are really special, spontaneous moments. And then our, there are the sets um, that are on, on such a prominent space. Like Sunrise at Robot heart is a very good example. Yeah. I know exactly how that's go how that goes because I've done it so many times. I know exactly what minute the sun comes up. Yeah. And I, I know approximately how many people will be there. So I can really plan around it. And and those sets I wanna plan in advance because I really don't want to have the situation where at the end of the set I realize, oh shit, I should have played this record and I forgot, you know. <laughs> I wanna really make sure that every amazing record that has come out since the last year, Sun- Sunrise Robot Heart, until this Sunrise Robot Heart is featured during that set. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: And in terms of your plans for Burning Man in 2020, are you going to go back, do you think? Um, it is unlikely,
1: but only because I've gone
0: so many years
1: that for me personally, that journey is kind of over, yeah. um, which has nothing to do with the festival itself. Um, but more with the fact that for for me those really special moments have kind of become the norm and then you start taking them for granted and then you know it's it's not as phenomenal anymore as the first couple of times you do it yeah uh so i i really feel that it's time to take a step back and let other people create those magic moments until maybe you know maybe next year or or the year after i have this feeling of oh my god i want to do this and or approach it from a different angle, or do something completely different, or yeah. arrive with the kazoo, or like,
0: I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, until that happens, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna go. Yeah, you could have five years worth of tracks that you've built up that, that, that just have to be played. Yeah. If, if nobody else has played them, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, around kind of 2011, um, the EDM explosion was kind of in full swing and you made like a conscious choice to get back to the underground, restricting your live appearances to venues that prioritise music and sound rather than things like VIP tables and, yeah. you know, that kind of culture. Can you tell us kind of what was behind that decision and do you think the scene is moving in the right direction in terms of its relationship with the kind of underground and commerciality of it. What what's your kind of view on, oh, on wow. that? And here in 50 I am thinking, or less. yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: here I am thinking I really need to shorten my answers. Um, Be as expansive as you want, honestly. <laughs> um, so in 2011, it, I, th- that was just a conscious choice that the, I had so many bad experiences at bottle service clubs yeah. that I didn't want to play in a venue where people did not come for the music, because um, it just felt like a big waste of my time. And I felt like, okay, if I'm gonna make my money um, just going through the motions, I'll just go back to law school or something. Or, or but, but I shouldn't do that with the thing that I love. Um, so I, I focused on venues that are really in it for the music. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they have smaller budgets. Um, but at least I got to do the stuff that I liked and I, I didn't feel pressure to play a certain sound. Um, and you get you get so much more appreciation from, from fans because you, you have people who, who come there truly to see you um, rather than to be seen and spend some money and, and have no interest in who you are anyway.
0: I think the culture is kind of like moving back towards kind of the underground a little bit. You know, that VIP culture does have its, it's found kind of its place in its niche. But I think the uh, the reaction has been for the underground just to get better. Are you happier now doing this than you were <laughs> before, would you say?
1: Yeah. Every, well, let's put it this way. Every time I'm in a bottle service club Uh, in this day and age I'm really happy that it's not me DJing (laughs) and and every time I hear like a prominent name DJ in a bottle service club I I see his face and I see how he's hurting um and his I feel his pain inside and I'm
0: like well maybe next time you won't take this job (laughs) (laughs) everyone's learning yeah yeah um, and you held a residency at the the Output Club in Brooklyn. Yeah. With your night most below the surface, um, Output sadly closed recently uh, after being voted the number one club in the world. I mean, with the continued introduction of more and more kind of festivals and things like that, do you think that that's hurting kind of smaller club culture, or do you think they're just trying to find a bit more of a balance? Um, <clears throat> no, I don't. I don't think that the the closing of Output had anything to
1: do with. Um, festival culture mm-hmm. uh, number one it was an absolutely amazing club and yeah. it was such a, an honor to just have my own night there and to do whatever I wanted from, from open to close and it, it it's, it's such a special room um, so yeah that said they made um, Output made a pledge when they opened to dedicate themselves completely to underground music uh, which was amazing, um, but that meant that their programming every single night was the same type of music. So they're basically competing with themselves yeah. on every night. So if, if I would have my Wednesday night and I would draw two, three hundred people, those two, three hundred people would guaranteed not show up on the Thursday night that the other great DJ did did their night. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and then, you know, not even talking about Friday or Saturday, but... That was, that was their problem. So most clubs would solve that issue by saying like, okay, Friday we have hip-hop night and Saturday night we do techno and Sunday is salsa and uh, Tuesday is karaoke, right? <laughs> and then you still have one really badass underground night, but the yeah. rest is kind of you know, different, especially for, for smaller venues. That That is usually the, the formula. But they didn't want to do that. So they figured, um, let's just call it a day.
0: It's a shame. And now the things that you're kind of looking for as a DJ and a performer, are you trying to seek out something to replicate that? Like you said, it was such an amazing space, amazing room, and to have your own night where you could play whatever you wanted and be in charge of that. Is that something that you're, you're looking for again? No.
1: I am um, uh, working very hard um, at the time that we're recording this podcast um, to start a new project called Electric Circle, which is a club experience built in a warehouse um, starting in Brooklyn, um, that has the sound of an electronic dance beat, deep house, tribal, that, that same, you know, tribal feeling, yeah. um, but made entirely with live percussionists. So wow. no DJs, no loops, no pre-recorded tracks. Uh, just live percussionists that are manipulated um, through software in real time uh, to sound like an electronic dance beat and they're in two story high scaffolding surrounding the dance floor um, wow. <clears throat> about 25 um, drummers and then on top of that musicians and, and, and featured artists and spoken word people and, and vocalists uh, but so it's you walk in and it's a club experience and it's mm-hmm. a massive sound system Yeah, but then you know, it's going to be dark and dimly lit. And then you see all around you and above you. That is all these drummers
0: creating this beat wow. that is around you. That's so very post-apocalyptic and cool. <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, so yeah, you would almost, it would almost be like a round, like theater almost. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. You'd just be pummeled with sound. You're going to need yeah. those band members again after all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, this is me
1: after 30 years. Uh, <laughs>
0: What was, the, what was the kind of inspiration for that? I don't think I've ever seen or seen anything like that before. Um, the inspiration, was, well,
1: again, I, now I'm talking completely subjectively yeah. my own personal point of view. After 30 years of, of DJing, I, I don't have any peers that I truly admire in a sense that they're doing something Something completely new or innovative, or they're doing something that I couldn't do, um, and that's what has you know kept me going yeah. in electronic music for all those years. That there are always these people that do like unbelievable stuff with new sounds for for years in electronic music. The sound would be different every single season, and the clubs would be different, and the sound systems would be different, and the, and the production software would be different. And, and from that came different sounds like 10 years ago and especially 20 years ago, if you would play a record uh, in a club that was a year old, the crowd would know that it was a record from a year ago. Even if they had never heard the record, just from the way it sounded, you could tell that that was a record from, from last year, just from how it was produced. And, and that is something that I love to, to, to chase that high of like, I want to be in the forefront of that. And how can I make, the beat even fatter. And, uh, you know, I remember that the, when Eric Prids came along and kind of blew everybody out of the water, I literally sat in my studio in tears, like, how did he do that? <laughs> and why didn't I do that? And, you know, and I had to go back to the drawing board because what the fuck did Eric prids do? Like, that's what I love the most. And that's, um, I haven't had that yeah. in a long time. And I think, I think like, Dubstep and EDM were kind of like the last... Conquest in terms of how loud you can make something, yeah. and that was like the last level of like destroying every dynamic range and just the exploring the digital domain of audio to the fullest, and then then it was done. Yeah, and sadly, I didn't like dubstep, so I, I never followed that trend because I just didn't like the the sound. But after that, we've just been rehashing trends and 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 now everything kind of sounds 90s again and and that's cool too you can make great parties like that but if you've been in it for as long as i have it 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 all just sounds like something else nothing sounds fresh um so i just wanted to create something that was truly fresh when you wake when you when you walk in it's not just a dj pressing play but it's actually a a live performance plus the fact that most of the records that i play these days you know i i hate to use the word you know shamanic house because that is you know already like (laughs) that's the term you give it when you want to hijack the genre but you know the slightly slower a lot of live percussion uh, a lot of organic instruments a lot of middle eastern influences um all that kind of sound lends itself perfectly for for a being produced live yeah yeah so that was another thing when i started to play that it's like why why is nobody doing this live and you have so many djs that have live musicians playing along with the beats but nobody is making the beats
0: live yeah which is really where all the energy comes from Uh, yeah i saw um i think it was last year i saw goldie Play obviously drum and bass with a live band, and he had two drummers on stage, and wow. they were being worked so hard. You can imagine the drum and bass that they're creating, but it was all 100% live. That's Just amazing. The energy from that, yeah, it was incredible. Um, yeah, so if you had multiple drummers creating all of those beats live, it'd be a real experience um you kind of touched on it when you in your answer there about kind of that whole nineties thing and nostalgia and that there is a whole kind of rich seam of that out there at the moment. What are your kind of thoughts in terms of that kind of looking back and revisiting old tracks, you know whether in a new form or just kind of resurrecting them in a way, or are you okay, no, they're done? I'm just future facing all the way. What's your kind of feelings on that? Well, so that's the, the upside. I just, I just explained the downside
1: of, of there not being any evolution in, in the sound, but the upside of there not being any evolution is that you can literally pick any era and just find a record that stood the test of time and play that. So 10 years ago, you know, maybe I'll play one classic, and that would be the classic in your set. and now you can play stuff from 10, sometimes even 20 years ago, and that fits seamlessly, especially with with underground stuff and deep house stuff It fits seamlessly in into a set. People are like, "Wow, what's his record?" And he's like, "Wow, well, it's
0: from 1998." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I love that. so
1: that's that's the upside. You yeah. can you can play a lot of old stuff again.
0: You're, we're in London right now. You obviously got a gig tomorrow um, here. What do you make of the crowds in this city kind of compared to where you play in the rest of the world? Uh, do you think it's a more knowledgeable audience that you play to or more up for it or? So it's difficult for me to tell
1: because the past, um, I'd say, six or seven shows I played here were all somehow related to the Burning Man scene. Okay. So, um, either promoted by people from that, uh, from that scene or, uh, by Burning Man itself. Um, so I, you know, I have the advantage that people already know me and my current sound. And then there are definitely people who come to the show who know me from 15 years ago. I can just tell by their age, like, okay, I got your number. (laughs) (laughs) You're in fabric in 2003. (laughs) Um, uh, but it's, so so I'm I'm fortunate that I don't have to come in here and really is you know establish oh what do they need to hear because I can just play what I like and then they
0: will probably like it too. Yeah. So far so good. So far. Not knock on wood for tomorrow. <laughs> and um yeah, I mean we kind of talked just mentioned it before uh, we turn the mics on, um, but you're kind of touring all over the world. So where is kind of home for you? Do you consider yourself kind of a world citizen, global citizen, or is it, you know, there's, there's definitely home is where the heart is and that is someplace special?
1: Well, I have to be very careful answering that in the UK,
0: right? Because wasn't
1: it? didn't they say here, like, a citizen of everywhere is a citizen of nowhere? Isn't that, isn't that totally, the, yeah. the English approach? So, um, no, I've, I've, I feel like I'm uh, a citizen of New York City and I will be spending a lot of time in New York City for my upcoming project in Brooklyn. Um, but in the meantime, I'm between Barcelona and the Bahamas. Um, it's not a bad place to be between. No, exactly, <laughs> somewhere in the ocean. Um, uh, Barcelona, I've, I've been there for two and a half years. I lived there briefly in 2007, uh, loved it, and then decided to um, go back there. But now that I'm focusing on Brooklyn again, Barcelona will probably have to uh, go again
0: yeah. back to Brooklyn.
1: Back to Brooklyn.
0: Okay, I mean it sounds really exciting. I you know I can't wait to kind of see how that develops. It's, it's like I heard nothing quite so interesting and as exciting as that. Um and okay, so I'm kind of conscious of the time and everything, but you know, let's try and wrap this up. What we always try and do is um, the last few questions we always ask our guests to pick like five tracks for our spotify playlist obviously i'm going to put the water song in there anyway but oh that's right i didn't pick any of my own no, no, records this, this oh shit good. well should should they have been like no 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 all could, my own records it's it's just gut feel honestly you know the, the first thing that popped into your head see this is how
1: bad there. i am with branding like <laughs> i i didn't pick one of my own records for that list i'm like I completely approach that from a, from a DJ point of view. Don't
0: worry. If you'd have come back and it'd been all your own uh, choices sort of your own material, I'd have been a bit like, oh, yeah, he's picked all his own stuff. What's <laughs> this about? But no, I mean, it's great. You've got a real kind of eclectic sure. thing going on. No, it's fine, um, and they're always around the specific things. And like we know that it's very difficult for to say we're not going to hold you to that one choice, right? It's not going to be definitive, you know. Just something that you felt like as a recommendation to our listeners. Um, and we kind of always start off with the catalyst, the one track that kind of got you into house music. Uh, you chosen the Shep Pettibone remix of Level Forty Two. Something about you. Yeah. Can you? It wasn't Shep Pettibone. Wasn't he on one of the New York radio DJs that used to cut up? Yeah, that stuff? but
1: he was uh, mainly like the first big name remixer. Yeah. Uh, out there too it's uh shortly f- um followed by David Morales, yeah. of course, but uh Shepetion was one of the first people who did remixes that were different than just long versions that yeah. that were really like it had a different beat and sometimes a different tempo and and he could completely take a track apart and and put it back together in a different way and um the level forty two remix was my first introduction to what a remix could be and how cool that was because I was never, I was a fan of level 42. I was never a fan of the original song. And then I heard that remix and I'm like, wow, like you can do that. Like you get away with that. So that, that was really the first song that I heard that made me think about, you know, cutting up records. And, and this is back when I still had a reel to reel player and you could just cut up bars from records and, and, and experiment with that. So yeah, Shep Pettibone, big shout out. That was the big inspiration.
0: Wow, damn, what a what an inspiration. Um and a floor filler we always ask for. You've chosen Todd Terry. Yeah. Um Strandbar. Yeah. Um what has been why was the why was that the the choice and uh, just talk about when you got it's, that and reaction. It's
1: one of those records that sounds like it could be from the future or it could be from the seventies. Uh, it's, it's just so perfect. It's a piano anthem. It's disco, but it's a, it's highly percussive. Um, and it just, it's like, you asked me a floor filler. Like every time you play that record, the floor is completely packed. Yeah. And, and a bonus is that for some weird reason, not everybody knows the record. So, it's still like for, for some people on the dance floor, it's still like, wow, what
0: is this? It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a great build on it. It doesn't. Unbelievable. Sp- yeah, it yeah. goes, it really goes. Um, and yeah, it's okay. So for a, to soundtrack a perfect sunset, obviously you've done that multiple times, um, at some like burning man, um, you have chosen, uh, I'm going to struggle saying, uh, Oh, a trauma. Yeah.
1: Triad. Um, that is a, a record. It, I don't know if you know his productions. He, he has very unorthodox production styles and, and at first listen, especially when you compare it to other records, there's always something off about it. But then when you, when you listen to it as a work that stands by itself, it's, it's absolutely stunning. Um, and, and this is, it's a 15-minute track that just, it has this chord progression that never stops. And it just, it's completely hypnotic. You can throw a cappellas over it you can create your own breakdowns It'd be to keep just keep going and going and it's perfect
0: for sunset because it's that time of day vibe yeah, yeah. um and it, uh, one that doesn't necessarily have to be house music or dance music um a tearjerker however it is it is it, it is, is definitely dance music yeah. because
1: i i figured you a tearjerker it, it's so easy to go off dance music but it's, i try to find a track that really gives me goosebumps Still, the Andrea Doria, Beauty of Silence, the Impetto remix. Every time I play it, even though it's like 12 years old, um, it's just so well done. It's like that Italian craftsmanship of like perfect production, perfect engineering. Every sound is in its right place. It gives me goosebumps every single time. It's phenomenal. That's
0: the best.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: And, okay, so... The last tune, it's the end of the night, the crowd are asking for one more. I'm not going to try and pretend I can pronounce what. <laughs> that is, <laughs> that, uh, is.
1: That, that is a track from uh, the late 70s from mm. South Africa by yep. Uh And it's called Malalela. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recently did a remix of that track. Uh, it, I use it a lot to end my sets with mm-hmm. uh, in the original version. And then eventually... I started thinking maybe I should you know, put a beat under it, and and I did. So I'm now in the process of uh, making that a legitimate uh, project. So there's another thing that I would like when by the time this airs, maybe you'll hear it everywhere, and then
0: I was successful at it. And yeah, and you've totally got your own track into your, uh, your five tunes. Exactly, yes, <laughs> then there will be one of mine in there. Great. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, okay, and so our final question is always, Um, The background on us is we are house culture. We absolutely live for the love of the beat, the rhythm, the crowd, the energy of house music. Um, You've been, as you've said, a DJ and involved in the scene for over 30 years. What are your feelings on what it's given you in life and just kind of just sum up generally like what this scene means to you? The best way to sum it up is um, uh, my
1: girlfriend's son is 23 and uh, he goes to bars and clubs when he goes out, but he's never been exposed to um, underground dance music or um, high-end sound systems or immersive sound systems. And he came to one of my shows uh, for the first time last year. And he came up to me afterwards and he was absolutely speechless. He says, I've never seen people go so nuts for music they don't know. And I've never people seen people dance so hard. And I've never been personally so captivated by music that I didn't even know existed. And to to hear somebody of a completely different generation verbalize that to me and and remind me of how special that is um that to me is the is the biggest reason why i'm still doing this and 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 why i love this so much and and how privileged i am that i get to do that um because it's it's not very common anymore like most places where you go out at night play top 40 music and don't have great sound systems and then there is this little niche in the underground where you can you know carve out your own little space and your own little following. And to have that following is the most amazing feeling in the world. And it's very easy, especially after 30 years, to be completely fixated on like, oh, my following is not big enough. Or, you know, my tour is not full enough. But the reminder of how amazing it is that you play somewhere and people come to it, even if it's in the middle of nowhere, and they dance their asses off to
0: music they didn't know
1: existed. That is, that's it. That's that's to reward
0: amazing that's that's absolutely brilliant the best place to wrap it up i think thank you cool thank you so much all (laughs) right my pleasure
2: house culture
0: Great stuff, wasn't it? What a mellifluous voice Jesse has, perfectly befitting his chilled aura and vibe. I want to thank him again for taking the time to sit down with us and have that chat back in November last year. Since then, I've been in touch with him to find out what he's been up to, and whilst having passed the majority of his lockdown so far in the Bahamas, he's now back in New York City, surrounded by, in his words, long-time friends, inspiring protests, and fellow unemployed musicians. However, he's not been slacking off during this period and has been creating plenty of new music for us to listen to, including his new single Tiny Little Human coming out in July, featuring remixes from Pesna, Michael Mayer and himself. You can listen to the original of that on his SoundCloud page. And what you'll also find there is an epic four-hour radio show where Jesse counts down his top 40 scumfrog classics, all with commentary from the man himself. Honestly, you need to check this out, not only because the tune selection is incredible, but there is a video version that accompanies it. You can watch him spin and chat about these tracks as the sun goes down around him. All the links for these are on his SoundCloud page. As for the electric circle project he told us about, as expected, this is on hiatus until maybe 2021, but I have seen an incredible visualisation video of what the finished experience will be like, and believe me, it is mind-blowing, like nothing you've ever seen before. We'll look forward to seeing that open soon. As ever, you can find all of the tracks that we discussed on our playlist on Spotify, just search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, and there you'll find a whole smorgasbord of sounds, chosen by all of our podcast guests, that cover every aspect of dance music. Not wanting to leave any scumfrog productions out, I've also chucked in that Tanaglia classic, The Water Song. Unfortunately, the remix of Letambulu that Jesse mentioned he was working on might not see the light of day, However, the stunning original is now forever embedded in our playlist. Enjoy. Once you've signed up to follow that, please help support the House Culture Podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. This last bit, as I've always said before, it's really important. It does make a difference. If you say something really nice, we might give you a shout out in the next episode which gives me the honour of shouting out to the person who goes by the name of Sonic Maelstrom, who reviewed us on Apple saying God bless House Culture for bringing the content we need to help us carry on. It's our absolute pleasure. We all know God is a DJ. We love getting feedback as well as helping you live your lockdown life in whichever way we can. Don't forget to hit up our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Not only will you be fully informed about the podcast, You'll also be able to share the love for the scene with other party goers from around the world. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can contact me directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. See you next time.
2: House culture.